Please turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4. I'll be reading Luke, chapter 4, verses 31 to 37. Luke 4, 31 to 37. And he, Jesus, went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee. And he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power He commands the unclean spirits and they come out. And reports about Him went out into every place in the surrounding region. Lord Jesus, it is only by the power and the authority of your kingdom, of your kingship, of your rule and your reign in this earth that any of us have seen and loved and delight in the truth of this kingdom, of this good news that you have brought and that you have purchased on behalf of all of us who will cling to you as our Savior from our sin and from the domination of Satan's kingdom. Let us taste this truth in this text this morning all the more. So therefore to that end, help me. Help me unfold the meaning of this day in your earthly ministry to your glory. Amen. So far we have seen Luke is up to something. Nothing of this is by accident where he retells the angelic visitation to John the Baptist's dad as the forerunner this child will be, and the angelic visitation to Mary, that God Himself will be implanted in your womb, that He was born, and then the angels' test, I mean, the angels' testimony to the shepherds, and then at twelve we see what is this man? at 12, and then his baptism, 
And this miraculous voice from heaven is the fulfillment of what had been prophesied in the Hebrew Scriptures. And then he's tempted by the devil and he uses the Scriptures to defeat him. This man who is without sin. And what he is saying, and we're seeing this unfold in Luke's narrative, is this is the King bringing in the kingdom of God. Meaning the rule, the reign of God in a way that had been prophesied and that had never manifested itself this way in human history. And last week we saw the first thing Luke, Luke himself gave us of Jesus' ministry essentially was showing up in his hometown and he was rejected. And he did no authority or miracles there. They tried to kill him. And so that we do not misunderstand, maybe he's not the king bringing the authority of the kingdom. The very next thing Luke shows us is, let me show you another day. A Saturday. In another town. So that you don't miss the point of his power and his authority used at His will. See, really, from what I read here, it's one day, and that one day, that one particular Saturday, stretches all the way to the end of chapter 4. Here's a typical day for Jesus on the Sabbath. He is at synagogue, and the service goes on, and He's the teacher. And he's teaching, and he's interrupted by a demon spirit through one of them. He casts it out. Who knows how long service went. After service, he goes to Peter's house for dinner. Peter's mother-in-law is sick. He heals her. And she gets up and serves them. After dinner, the whole town shows up with all their sick loved ones and Jesus heals them I don't know if he took a nap or what but sometime early in the morning at Peter's house he got up and got out of there to a lonely place to pray and some people saw this or whatever and looked for him and found him and said please stay 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 keep doing this stuff here and he said no Because I'm called to go to all the other towns and preach this kingdom of God also. That's a busy day. But this morning, we're just going to focus on the synagogue service. So, pick up there, verse 31. We read, And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, And he was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. Now first, Luke says he went down. Well, because what previously, he was in Nazareth. And Nazareth is 1,200 feet above sea level. Capernaum is 680 feet below sea level, so he says from there, about 20 miles away, 
He went down to Capernaum, this little town on the shore of Galilee. If you know your Bible maps and you go up north the Jordan River, there's Galilee. It's on the other side, north, a little bit west. It's a, it's a fishing town. A lot of blue-collar workers in this town. And this little city, Capernaum, became Jesus' home. This became his home base for his ministry. Matthew tells us in chapter 4, verse 13, And leaving Nazareth, he went and he lived in Capernaum by the sea. Mark says this in chapter 2, And when he returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was at home. So, this became his place of residence during His ministry. And so, here we are on this one particular Saturday. Sabbath day. He goes to the synagogue service with the men and the women of town and blue-collar workers. And together, there they are singing the Psalms, as we saw last week. Reciting the Shema. Deuteronomy 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. The Lord God is one. And then they recite prayers and hear the reading of the law of Moses and the reading from one of the prophets. But this now what happens next is why these people are really there this day. Jesus teaches. Verse 31, and He, Jesus, was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at His teaching. Because His Word possessed authority. This is why they're there and they were not disappointed because He says they were struck They were blown away, bowled over by this man, Jesus' teaching. It was radically different from what they had been used to. Now, so why are they struck? Why are they amazed or astonished? How are you going to, that's how you would translate this word. They're like, whoa! The answer is, is because, see the word for, for, or because His Word, it means the words coming out of His mouth, His Word possessed authority. His Word literally was with authority. I think there's a couple things to, to note about that. We'll get to the other part because... This is Jesus. But Mark, in telling this same story about this particular day, says it this way. And they were astonished at His teaching, for or because He taught them as one who had authority, and He adds, and not as the scribes. Matthew 
at the end of the great Sermon on the Mount, comments and says, And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at His teaching. Because He was teaching them as one who had authority. And not as their scribes. The scribes, the more professional, scholarly, studied teachers in Judaism of the law. Because as they would travel around, they would teach in cities, they would teach in, in synagogues. The difference of those teachers are the word rabbi. That means teacher is in their teaching, they would constantly quote the oral traditions of previous rabbis. And they would speculate on what rabbi so-and-so thought. In the first century, those professionals, the scribes, lawyers studying the law academically, they took great pride in not having anything to add from what other previous rabbis have added or commented on about the Scripture. Their system was a system of quotations. If you read a scholarly paper today, you're, you're not, you can't write a scholarly paper unless you are filled with footnotes or endnotes. Where are you getting your authority about this subject? You've got to quote other authorities. and So this was their system. Isn't their teaching? Rabbi Isaac says about this text, and, and Rabbi Hillel adds such and such, and Rabbi Shemuel goes on to say this was what they're used to listening to. They would teach academically, Start with the Bible, the law, the prophets. But then the authority came from the oral traditions of previous rabbis. Now, Jesus did not do that. He didn't speak in theological jargon. He speaks plainly, He speaks clearly, and He speaks straightforwardly. And He says, this... In this text of Scripture, not the rabbis, this is what it says, and therefore this is what you are to do. And he was not quoting anybody else but Scripture. This is weird for their situation. He was quoting the Bible. And he's unfolding it plainly and clearly. And he's doing it as the unique authority Himself, the King, the Son of God, eternally in true humanity. As you remember in other texts, Jesus' style was, you have heard it was said, but I say, He's not refuting the Scripture, when he did that. He's refuting rabbis' interpretations of the Scripture. 
at many times, missing the point and not going far enough. You have heard it said in what is called the halakha. And at that time, it wasn't written down. Later, by a couple hundred years later, those oral traditions memorized from previous rabbis would be recorded and written and you finally have the Talmud. But the, the, the oral tradition of the Jews was so strong in memorization of Scripture and rabbis, etc. So he's referring to, you've heard it said, this is what your teachers are telling you, this is the tradition, in other words, what commentators on the Bible are saying, but I, Jesus, say to you. Now, he, he preached God's Word, not just about God's Word or speculating about God's Word, but preached it and pressed it against the conscience of His hearers. And that's why it says, they were stunned. They were stunned, why? Because of this encounter of this teacher here. And I'm listening to him here. There's something about the words, the presence, the intensity, and the impact of his words upon our souls in the synagogue this day. Jesus' authority is like no other, ever. His authority is derived from everything Luke has laid out at the be- from the beginning of his narrative. His authority is in the substance of His very person and His very being. But that's not, don't miss it. His authority is the written Word of God, which existed and was there long before He was born. His authority is in the scrolls, the book, as it meets the authority Himself of God incarnate, who is anointed with the person of the Holy Spirit upon Him. And that's why it says, and they were astonished at His teaching because His Word was just filled with an authority. Jesus' preaching was not only clear to them, Okay, got it. Okay. It was penetrating. It wasn't merely hitting the intellect. It has to do that in order to get really to the heart. But it was penetrating. Now, I think if we're honest with Luke, we, we, we can't leave out what he's been showing us. It's God implanted in Mary. That's true. But He's in true humanity. And He has made clear that the Holy Spirit has descended upon Jesus at His baptism. And then when He's leaving the region of the Jordan, going off into His ministry, he, Luke makes it clear He was filled or full of the Holy Spirit. And then we saw his first sermon recorded in Luke. He's in the synagogue in Nazareth and he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach. The 
reason in that particular context that God the Holy Spirit, not God the Son, but God the Holy Spirit is anointing the human person Jesus is for the purpose of teaching, proclaiming with words a message. And the people in Capernaum were moved. They were impacted. It was penetrating to them. Now, let's not miss the larger point that we see here that does carry over to this very morning, to the very world today in 2011. And that is, as Jesus was doing war on behalf of many souls with His Word, His weapon was Holy Scripture. Luke has made it clear, and it's not an accident, in the temptations in the wilderness for His own soul, His weapon to do battle was to believe in and quote the Scripture. He shows up to the synagogue and He has a text. Isaiah 61. And that's what He unfolds. In the great Sermon on the Mount, it at its core, what it is, is an exposition of that part of the Bible we call the law. Moses. After his death, after his resurrection, on the road to Emmaus, and where these disciples who followed him didn't know who they're talking to yet, the text says, and beginning with Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus had these Words written on the page so internalized. Beginning with them, He interpreted them to them. That in all the Scripture, they were speaking of Himself. So, Jesus served the meals. And it was the meals constantly of the written Word of God. If the church today is to have the authority of this kingdom, the true kingdom that Jesus brought, the church must teach the Word, the Bible. The Scripture. Paul's charge to Timothy in his office as a preaching, teaching pastor goes like this. Do your best, Timothy, to present yourself to God as one who is approved. That is, in other words, 
one who is a worker, who, who, who works hard, and therefore does not have any reason to be ashamed. No. What do you mean, Paul? This, Timothy, this is what I mean. By rightly handling the Word of truth. Timothy, you've got to work at this book. A couple paragraphs later is when he says to Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God You've got you to hear Paul. It's one thing to say, okay, I charge you to do this. Come on now, are you playing word games with me, trying to freak me out? I charge you in the presence of God. This is much more serious than when my kids say, cross your heart, Dad. Or pinky swear. No. He said, no, I'm charging you in the presence of God. That's how serious Paul is. And in the presence of Christ Jesus, who is, he pushes it a little bit further, the one who will, he is coming to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. Okay, he hasn't even gotten to the verb to charge yet. Here's the charge. In all that, feel the weight, Timothy? Preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season to, you're going to have to, Timothy, at times, correct people. Reprove them on what they think. The false doctrine. You're going to have to rebuke others and exhort, encourage others then you have to do all this day in and day out with complete patience and teaching. So, all the more in our dumbed down culture that we live in, TV has ruined us. It is a dumb, dumb Western culture today compared to centuries past. We live in a culture where the quick blurb and visual now of the, whether the TV or your computer monitors and just the one minute, the two minute, or the 20, what is it, 123 characters. We live in a culture, quickly grab me, get me, where people more and more are not trained to have a sustained thought or an argument that might take a little time to, and then penetrate their hearts. Therefore, what has happened is a culture of intellect, of us people, and then come into the church and the evangelical world and realize people are really impatient with learning anything deep, with doctrinal preaching. What, what doctrinal preaching really means is actually saying something of content from the Scripture and saying what it is 
and saying, then it's not that. And just being clearer and clearer and clearer instead of the other way. More and more ambiguous, but entertaining. The church <clears throat> must stand on God's Word and teach it. Otherwise, here's, here's my statement. To the extent we do not in this world, and no matter what churches we belong to, it is to that extent we do not have kingdom authority. The kingdom that Christ came and He is ruling over. He rules through the church, through the body of Christ, through believers. Not disconnected from the Word, but He rules through the Word of God in the church, in the people, to the world, and to one another. The history of the church is filled constantly. It's not new. Over the centuries, there have always been movements within the church organizational structure to downplay preaching. To downplay expository, expositional, doctrinal preaching of the Holy Scripture. And it's not an accident since Satan himself knows the power of the exposition of the Scripture itself for the salvation of souls and for the building up and the edification and the sanctification and the holiness of believers in the church. That's why in the great reformation of the 1500s in Europe, one of the keynote revolutionary things that was happening was the preaching of the Word of God to the people in the pew in language they can understand. Instead of rituals and droning on and on and on, in language they could not understand, called Latin. It was the opening up of the Scriptures through preaching to the people that brought about that radical transformation of Europe. And there have always been, and there are in our day, and I got this from my undergraduate Biblical studies and pastoral studies training. I got it from my seminary training. I just heard it. It was coming there. People essentially downplaying the necessity and the importance of expositional preaching in the church. The emphasis was going somewhere else on how to grow the church. Arguments go because of what I just admitted. It's true. We are developing in our culture, and especially here in America, stupid people like me. I graduated high school with a... I don't know if I was literally... I'm not, I don't think I had as much as a fourth grade reading ability. So much of what I had just said of the problem going on in culture... So just give them little pictures 
Now don't entertain them. Get the, okay? Other people, they'll run away if you talk for more than ten minutes and make an argument. I know it's true. I had a pastor friend of, of mine numbers of years ago tell me, you can't preach doctrine like that in the churches because the human brains are different than they were a few hundred years ago when people had to listen to Edwards. Their, quote, their synapses are firing differently. Okay. Maybe that's true. But the answer is not neglect the Word. The answer is to continually teach people how to think and how to listen. But again, we're not talking about mere intellectualism. We're talking about the gospel in Jesus' kingdom. And He saves people. And so He could take a 19-year-old who had a fourth grade reading ability and He can cause him to learn to think. And He can cause him to learn to read better. He can cause him to grow. And the reason and the way He will do that is because He caused him to be born again by His Spirit. And He realized the, the treasure of the Christ that I have miraculously come to love with this little knowledge is wrapped up in this book. No one's going to stop me, therefore, from asking those questions, thinking through it, reading it, and desiring for my leaders to teach it. Back to my notes. While people are here in the synagogue, they're intensely listening to Jesus, to this preacher. Bam! Something happens. Let's read it. Pick up verse 33. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Ah! That's my best. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe I'm influenced by movies. I don't know. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. The Holy One of God. So, here He is in church. Synagogue, one of the members or tenders there is possessed by a demon. Now, what, I don't know, you, this is what I make of it. Jesus is Jesus. He is who He is. He is the Holy One of God. And He is teaching. And here's a man, and he is demon possessed and there's a demon in him and therefore the demon is subjected to this authoritative teaching and he can't take it anymore that's what I think yeah. it just had to scream and just say stop it or, or something just what's going on here it freaked him out 
Just like when I was a bachelor, I lived in an apartment in Hawthorne, and I had a kitchen with a door, thank goodness, which I would keep shut, because when I would go in there at night and flip on the light, I would see 50 or 60 little black things scattering back into darkness, because those cockroaches did not like the light, and demons hate the light of Christ Himself. So, just picture, just think Think about what's going on here. There's intense silence as they're listening to a teacher who never taught like this. They've never heard such a thing. They're on the edge of their seats, hanging on every word. And then... must have freaked them out. And he's speaking words that they all know. What have you to do with us, Jesus from Nazareth? I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. Okay, That ha there in English, it, it, it's a really good one-to-one because the Greek is actually two letters too. It's the epsilon and the alpha. And it's like, ah! That's what it, but what it is, it's that interjection that really has with it not just like, wow, it's an interjection of displeasure. Yuck! Or, and then the question the demon asks, what do you have to do with us? Is, if you render it just literally, it's going to feel, he says, what to us? And to you, I mean, what do we, the demonic world, the kingdom of Satan, have to do with, with you? Or, I, now, is he really asking a question? And what's the answer, Jesus? Or is it rhetorical? I, mean, I, I think, I think, and I think most scholars think it's rhetorical. He's, that's the way for the demon to say. Don't mess with me. Are you, are you here to bring what I really don't want? Uh, get away from me. He's an unclean demon. He's an unholy demon, in other words. Cannot stand the Holy One of God. And then the next phrase, Have you come to destroy us? It means, oh no. You're here to destroy us? It's a very frightening, shuddering of demons. This is the instinctive cry of these angelics, angels who have fallen. These personhoods called demons. Internally, it is this fright of that they know is inevitable and they know it's coming. Their condemnation, their eternal damnation is not yet, but it's coming. If it today, this demon freaks out. Are you here to do it now? That's really what's going on. And the other thing about it, this church, our synagogue, is filled it was Satan and it was demons 
who were the first to recognize who Jesus really was. And let's not miss what Luke, Luke's before, you know, he knows where he's going at the end from the beginning of writing his narrative, even though we're taking 18 years to get through it. That's a joke. But it seems he knows where he's going. And what he's doing here with what's going on and why he wants to tell it in the synagogue this way is that he's saying, this is the one. This is the one prophesied about. This is the son of David. This is the king sitting on his throne. This is the one who is bringing the kingdom of God. So, in our text he makes it clear before the demon using the word authority. We're amazed. Because his teaching is authoritative. And then the demon. We're amazed. Look at his authority over the demonic realm. And when this this theme is flowing throughout Jesus' ministry. Many of you have known it. You've read through the Gospels and at times you're confused. He's come to preach the Kingdom of God. It's the good news of the Kingdom. The Kingdom is here, etc. Jesus Himself will later say in Luke, if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Luke is making clear Jesus is bringing in to the world the rule and the reign, a realm called the kingdom of God. Now here's just real briefly, we'll hit this more through Luke. There are texts in the Old Testament about God's reign and rule, and etc. And there's going to be a day where a lion will lay down with a lamb. And there's going to be a day within this world, there will be no more evil. There will be no more demonic influences. There will be no more sickness and death. God will rule and He will reign over all. Jesus came as the fulfillment of the promise of the incoming of the kingdom. The kingdom of God with His coming, and we're seeing it in the text this morning, was there. It was present. It was now. But it was still not yet. And this is the tension that goes throughout the Gospels. The not yet part is the total, the consummation of the kingdom, which will come with His second coming. But with His first coming, He was bringing the kingdom, you can say it this way, and this is what's going on here. The kingdom of God was coming into the earth in Jesus Christ and clashing with the kingdom of Satan. This is one of the major themes going on in Jesus' ministry. 
To understand there's an unseen realm of Satan's and spiritual powers of wickedness and authorities, demonic beings. And Jesus is bringing not the physical change of the new heavens and new earth yet, but He is bringing a realm, an unseen realm of authority, particularly in this sense. There are those in the kingdom and those outside of it. And those in it may be sitting right next to a husband or a wife who is outside of it. And the one who is in it means they have come into a spiritual realm of Jesus reigning savingly over them. But what's going on here in His ministry is this blatant clash. That's why He started off with Jesus and Satan. Jesus won that battle and there will be more. In this demonic realm, He comes in His ministry with such an authority coming against an authority of an unseen demonic unholy realm and at his word they must obey see much of first century judaism had a theology of the coming of the kingdom there they got these clues from the old testament and like evangelicals today develop their theologies and write their books and make movies over what they think the end's going to be they had their eschatology called the coming of the kingdom that they want to come and and pretty much in all of their differing theologies included not only destroying earthly powers like Rome, but Satan and the demonic realm. Jesus comes and this theme of conquering demonic beings, casting them out, freeing people, bringing relief to the captives. Remember Jesus in that sermon this is central to his ministry. So much so that, I don't know if you've thought about it, but as you see these clashes with demon-possessed people, that Jesus frees. And sometimes it just, numbers of times, and he casts demons out of many. You know, he gives you, they give you some experiences. But that demon possession in the whole Bible, they're all in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John except for four instances. Probably four. Two in the Old Testament and two in the book of Acts. All the rest are right there in Jesus' ministry, bringing in the kingdom. Now, don't get me wrong. We're talking about demon possession there. In the New Testament, with the apostles, with Paul, there is an affirmation of the reality of the ongoing presence of the demonic realm. Remember how Paul said it in 1 Corinthians, you have people, pagans over here in their religion, worshiping statues and idols and the gods, plural, that they deem to be behind their particular forms of worship. And Paul makes it clear, there are no such gods that exist. But, what's really behind that is demons. 
What's behind Islam and the creation of the false religion of Islam or Buddhism or the false religion of Judaism are demons. Demons love religion. If they can just get more people to be okay with the prospect of dying, somehow distract them, they are in it. That's what Paul just so easily talks about. Within the church is coming doctrines, teachings about Jesus that are really from demons. Demons, like this demon here, they <laughs> hate the light. And they hate the biblical Jesus. And they're happy to twist the biblical Jesus into someone who isn't the biblical Jesus. And let people be happy Christians. And so, Paul does give us in Ephesians 6, doesn't he? About demons, he says, Christian, you're in a battle. There are evil forces, wickedness, etc. You're in a battle. And he tells us how to fight it. And we'll get there at the end of this sermon. Jesus is coming. And we see it now manifested. He begins his ministry is a, as Dr. Ladd, a great New Testament theologian, died over 30 years ago, but I learned much from in his, from his book and the classes that I have taken about Dr. Ladd. And the way he would say it is, in Jesus' ministry is this cosmic clash of the kingdom of God with the kingdom of Satan. Now, let's get back to the synagogue. Pick up in verse 35. The demon's freaking out. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. Now, in the first century... These people are not unaware of the demonic realm. There were differing groups and personhoods here and there who were self-proclaimed exorcists. And they would have all kinds of differing ways of exercising or casting out demons from people who are being tormented. And they have to do with all kinds of recitations and incantations and crazy stuff. That's what they're used to. Jesus stands there. He does none of that hocus pocus stuff. There's an interruption. He's teaching. The demon screams out through this man standing up or whatever. Everyone is really in a hush. They can start to hear their heart beat out of their chest. I would be like that. What's going to happen? And Jesus says, Shut up. Come out of him. And then the man looks like he's having a seizure. 
on the ground. And Luke makes clear he was unharmed. I guess he didn't bust his head open or something. Could have. Looked like he might have. And this was stunning. They're looking and saying, he just spoke the word. And the demon obeyed him. Now notice Jesus didn't say when the demon stood up and spoke truth. I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. Whoo! Thank goodness somebody got it. Listen to Him. He did not have any desire or any holy purpose whatsoever or any need to have His enemies, the demonic realm, testify to who He truly is. In verse 36. Come out of him. Falls. Comes out. Unharmed. And they were all amazed. And they said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power, He commands the unclean spirits and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. This was utterly different than anything they saw. Everything this day. The way he taught. The power of his words with authority. Demonic manifestation with power and authority. He made it leave. This is the promised king, the sovereign, the one who sits on David's throne, the one who brings with his very person the rule and the sovereign reign of God. Are you Born again. Are you, in other words, a believer in the biblical Jesus? And say, in other words, the Jesus of history who is clearly portrayed in Scripture, is he your treasure. Is He the object of your affections because it root something has shined on you and when that light went on you didn't scatter like a cockroach or a demon but you fled to cling to Him in His work on the cross. If you answer, yes, that's me, then. One thing we see is in the synagogue that day. But remember, a couple years away, he's headed to the cross. And we are on this side of the cross. And Christ's rule and authority over darkness and Satan and demons is more established as the Holy Spirit says, 
through the Apostle Paul in Colossians 2, 13 to 15. If you said this is you, hear this. And you, believer, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, that means the, the unenlightenment of your heart, dead to God, but God made you alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. All that stuff that you and I so deserve, Paul says, he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed for you the rulers and the authorities, the demonic realm, and He put them to open shame by triumphing over them through the cross. Jesus has disarmed the enemy. Jesus has disarmed and guaranteed the future doom of Satan and demons. And so, today, 2011, jumping from the synagogue back there in A.D. 29, A.D. 30, the battle for human souls is still going on. The kingdom of God is still here. Christ is reigning as King and His cross is bringing into manifestation and fruition the salvation of many human sinners. He's doing battle against demons against the doctrines of demons against spiritual forces of wickedness that we're all born subject to as Jesus said straight to the face of some fellow Jews you're of your father Satan that's the problem that's the good news of the gospel of the kingdom. We are naturally, by our own agreement, even with it, in the realm, in the rule, in the kingdom of our King, Satan. And Jesus came to bring the kingdom of God, the Creator. And that is the kingdom that brings one from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light of God the Father's beloved Son. Thus, He is the King who reigns savingly because He has defeated the power of darkness. And the kingdom power, even today in 2011, to unloose the demonic darkness that reigns over many churchgoers, and false religion goers, and atheists, and just plain old pagans, is 
the power of the gospel. That's the power of the kingdom. That's why Paul would say the gospel itself is the power of God for salvation. And the kingdom is not the church. But the kingdom of Jesus has created the church. And the church is the bearer of that gospel, that message. By church, we don't merely mean we're having church on Sunday morning. We mean the body of Christ, the word of truth in the mouth of genuine saints who are in the kingdom. Proclaim the kingdom of Christ. The good news that you can be released from Satan's grasp. You can be released from your spiritual death. And so, who are these people back then or in 2011 who are being saved? Who are coming into the kingdom? Who are forgiven of their sins? Who are justified by Christ? All by this Jesus of Nazareth when they hear the message of the kingdom. Is it just those who intellectually have heard the message? Of course not. Okay, but is it is it those who have heard the gospel of Christ and know it's true and agree with it? The demon in synagogue that day not only understood something, he agreed. He knew who Jesus was. To just hear, know, think about, yes, and Jesus is God. And He became a man and He died for sins and He's the only way for salvation. At, at most, or it, that will qualify you to be a demon. James says, you got your theology right? You understand that there's only one God? You're a monotheist? Terrific. Demons believe that. In other words, they know it's true. But here's their response. They shudder. Or we saw that day. They shriek. Ah, you're here to destroy us. They, why? Why? They, what they know to be true, they hate. It's one thing to know. It's Yes, I heard the truth, and I know that that is true, even about Christ and about salvation. It's another thing to have the other element of saving faith. And that is to be very much unlike a demon and to love Him who saves. To not only recognize the truth, but to embrace Him as the treasure of your heart. Recognizing the truth of who Jesus is, is vitally important. But it's not necessarily saving faith. Saving faith is when our affections leap 
at what our mind understands about the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That day, the demon knew. And even today, demons have so much better understanding of true theology than many of us actual Christians. Their problem is, and it's the problem of a lot of people, even in Christendom, is that deep down, they don't like Jesus. They don't. And therefore, they're easily opened up to, or they might be the ones who were used to preach Jesus with a twist. That has always been going on. I'm just I'm pausing because I'm really trying. No, don't go there. Take too much time. But your minds can go. False doctrine. It's constantly going to be out there in the church world. Love the Jesus that God sent. Right here. In this book. Now, so then, when you put all this together, think about it. What is the hope of someone who is as demon-influenced, darkened, God-belittling and hating as Joe LeMay at age 19? Where is my or your hope? It is in Jesus who has rendered the power and the influence of Satan and demonic beings absolutely powerless over everyone He died for. Powerless over everyone who will come to saving faith in Him. And that means that the preaching of the gospel of Jesus is the hope even today of those who sit in darkness. Of people that you and I may know and they seem like that person cannot be saved. That person is too hardened. No. You don't know that. No one is too hardened for the kingdom of Jesus to reign and save that person. The gospel is the power of God unto Satan. Why? Because Jesus came and He conquered sin and guilt and shame. He purchased salvation for us. And He conquered her people so demonized in occultism so demonized in Islamism, so demonized in all kinds of isms, and they will, many of these, be saved because Jesus on the cross absolutely rendered powerless the demonization of those people when He chooses that one day to say, come out of Him. Darkened heart that is dead to me, come alive. And with a word... If you're in Christ, 
That is what happened to you. This is the authority of the King who was ordained to do it as His church proclaims the Kingdom. I'm going to close with a word from the Holy Spirit to us who are in Christ and in this Kingdom and in a battle as He says through the Apostle Paul. Finally, Christian, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God in order that you may be able to stand against the ongoing schemes of the devil today. For we do not wrestle against other human beings, flesh and blood, but we wrestle against rulers and against the authorities and against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm, stand Therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Oh, how important to understand the righteousness of Christ for what demonic influences want to deceive you about. And as having on your feet the shoes which are the readiness of the gospel of peace. And in all circumstances, whatever you're going through, take up the shield of faith with which you will extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Praying always. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, may You cause us, Your people, even now together, and throughout this week, to draw closer to You, praying and petitioning, standing on the firm foundation that You are sovereign and King over the universe. May we rejoice now together as we partake of the body and the blood that has purchased us, that has purchased for us a kingdom, that has purchased for us your saving rule over our hearts to the glory of your name and to the promoting of the preaching and proclamation of this great gospel of the kingdom in this earth. Amen.